When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. On 882 6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. In this episode, we speak to a former first-grade cricketer, who represented WA uh, an Olympic Games silver medalist, a three-time WA Sports Person of the Year. Uh, he's been inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. He is a world-renowned sports coach. And really, I've just uh, scraped the tip of the iceberg there as far as his uh, accolades go. Uh, Rick Charlesworth, welcome to Inspiring Stories. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. It would literally take me the whole hour to go through uh, all of your uh, awards, your trophies, your accolades, your titles. Um, so, look, that was just a few there. But do you consider yourself a, a high achiever, someone who was born to excel? Oh, I don't know. I think that uh, you you just get on and live your life and uh, your life takes different uh, pathways as you're going along. I uh, I grew up in the western suburbs. I had a privileged upbringing. It was, uh, it was a good experience. Experience growing up uh, as I did in uh, in uh, the western suburbs. Mm. My uh, my parents were both professionals. Um, they uh, they gave me opportunities. They had expectations. Mm. I did okay at school. I loved playing sport, and uh, you know, just went from there. You know, and I mean, uh, I was uh, you know as a kid, I played uh, footy and hockey and cricket and tennis and ran and swam as you do, and uh, some of those things uh, I followed through on. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Let's go back to those school days, though. You uh, you attended Christchurch Grammar School. Was there someone there who inspired you to uh, to not just play those sports but to play them uh, to a very, very high level? Well, I think it started much earlier than that. It started at primary school, you know, and there were, we had an old, uh, you know, we had some teachers at school who, of course, you, you were attached to, I think, the importance of uh, special teachers is mm. something that everybody would uh, would be able to recollect, and I think that uh, at Christchurch we had an old uh, Welshman, Wilfred Thorpe, who was the sort of year seven teacher, and he he had hockey at the school in primary mm. school. No one, no one, we had no one to play against, and so no other primary schools played. We used to play against the girls' private schools, MLC, PLC, St Hilda's. And we had terrific competitions, you yeah. know. We played 20 fixtures a year and, and, you know, I played in the school footy team. Graham Moss was a couple of years ahead of me at school, you know. He, yep. he fancied my sister, so I always got a game. <laughs> um, and, uh, and uh, you know, then uh, we we also uh, – my, my father had been a good cricketer and I, yep. so I played cricket and I loved uh, that and uh, followed on from there. When I got to Christchurch, then uh, – 
there was a, a fellow called Ray House who was the uh, involved in the school, eventually became the deputy head, and he uh, he was an important figure in hockey. And uh, there were people who uh, looked after the cricket, and mm. well, a few went, you know. And and the expectation was that you would uh, work hard at school and uh, and go to university. So that was uh, that was as it was. I I, I noticed just recently uh, Wayne Martin. The Chief Justice retiring. We used to yes. sit together in physics, Wayne and I. Is that right? Yeah, in the in the old days. So yes, he's retiring. Yeah, we're, we're both you, coming to the end. <laughs> You've got the appropriate sponsor, I think. Here, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not the first person to notice that. Look, I dare say you're a long way from done, Rick. Uh, you seem to be the sort of person who would probably struggle to sit still. Yeah, well, I'm busy, and I, I've, I'm semi-retired. I expect that's the way it'll stay because yeah. there's plenty to do and. Uh, and, you know, in a triumph of optimism over experience, I still have two boys at school at my age. Yep. So, uh, um, you know, I've got to pay the school fees <laughs> yeah, and, uh, school and do fees other things. They pay themselves. Yeah. Um, but look, uh, Christchurch, you mentioned uh, it's, a, it's a great environment if you want to uh, pursue those various sporting activities. Um, in the early years of you playing sport, though, at, you know, at, at, at some level, uh, you had to balance both cricket and hockey. Yeah, um, well, I, I, which one? Which one? Which one felt more right in your hand? A cricket bat or a hockey stick? Myself at footy, you know. I mean, yeah. until I was about fourteen, fifteen, and uh, but I just I used to hate getting beaten up. You know, you'd get the ball, <laughs> and you'd come out of a pack, and some guy would flatten you. You know, and I, I thought, oh, this isn't for me, the concussion. So I suppose that's the direction I took. Yep. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, they were always competing. But in those days, you could do both. And mm. There was an expectation that you could, and I think we make a mistake sometimes because we're trying to get our kids to to focus on one sport much too early. That leads to over overuse injuries. Mm. It, it also leads to boredom and, uh, and lack of follow through and, and, and lifelong interest sometimes. So they're, be- they're better off having experiences in a variety of sports. And balancing all of those, uh, some people struggle to balance one thing, but uh, you were playing cricket, you were playing hockey, uh, you also went on to study medicine, which is no uh, no small undertaking as well. Yeah, and it was it was a different world again. I mean, um, getting into medicine uh, in first year wasn't so hard. There were about 230 of us who started, only 60 went into second year, so that's where, the, that's where they whittled you down. That's where they whittled you down. So rather than the TE being the decider, it was uh, the, those first year exams at university, so there was a bit of uh, pressure and tension then and uh but but uh, you know it was being at university is like a fantastic environment mm. in, in some ways you uh, you have a freedom um you've got four months of holidays you know that was the cricket season in some ways and so uh, um it, again in a different world it was possible mm. there were always things you missed out i was just recently university cricket club made the final uh, in the uh, grade competition, and the last time they won was '74 when I was there. But there was we played in the grand final a couple of years earlier, and I couldn't make it because I was busy off playing hockey somewhere else. Yeah, so, right. So there are always things that you missed. Yep, it's still a, a balancing act, though. I mean, it's a pretty serious university course to undertake, isn't it? Studying medicine. Meanwhile, you're playing cricket and hockey. At what point did you think, or oh, the hockey might uh, overtake, or the cricket might overtake? I'm going to have to start. Prioritizing, I think you know hockey was always my first love. You know, it was a more immediate um, thing. It, it offered you um, opportunities to, to travel the world. My 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 mates in cricket used to go to England and play cricket, and mm. of course that would be the hockey season here, and so I could never do it. And so I never really 
I don't think I really uh, devoted the time to cricket that I ought have if I'd wanted to. Well, you, you say that though, but you played, you know, in three Sheffield Shield winning sides for WA. You you played alongside some of the absolute greats of WA cricket, uh, Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh. So when you say you didn't uh, focus that much on cricket, you still you still did a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, and I love playing. And, and the hockey season would finish, and the next season, the next week, you would be playing uh, cricket. Yeah. And so I was always fresh and fit, I suppose, for the cricket season. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think, as I said, I put the time in. I mean, when I my I was in third year at university when I went on my first Shield tour, and my roommate was Dennis uh, Lilly. Mm. Dennis, of course, was a shy bank clerk with the Commonwealth Bank back then, but <laughs> over that period of time, that was 72, he became very famous and, of course, yeah. um, um, a larger-than-life character in the game. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I lived through that period of time, I suppose. It was a very interesting, exciting period in uh, in, in cricket. We used to – we would get 10,000 people on the weekend at a Shield match. Yeah. You know, that's uh, terrific. Mm. You know, that's un- unbelievable now, isn't it? While we're just talking about cricket, can I ask you, uh, just because it's it's topical at the moment, uh, the Australian cricket team, the recent uh, dramas around ball tampering in, in South Africa, what's uh, what's your take on all of that? As someone who's been a player but also longer than that, uh, a coach, what's your take on it from afar? Well, uh, you know, it seems almost like the punishment's... Uh, um, Excessive, but I think the the reason for that is that that this was uh, premeditated um, action. You know, it wasn't just sort of spontaneous thing that occurred, and I think that's the reason that it's been seen in such harsh light. I mean, it doesn't it pales in insignificance compared with what Hansi Cronje did, for mm, instance. And so, absolutely. South Africans ought not be too anxious about this. But but yeah, it's it, it it's poor. Uh, it reflects, I think, a diminishing uh, quality of the culture. You, there are a range of incidents beforehand leading into this which which uh, underline that. Last year's dispute with the authorities about uh, pay and, and, and that sort of thing uh, it also reflects that, I suspect. Yep. And, and so uh, there's work to do to uh, rebuild and, and, and uh, improve that culture. I mean, competitive sport at that level is is difficult and intense and uh you have to be you have to be uh, well prepared and you have you, you have to have a moral compass uh, yeah. to to navigate it and and i think uh, our our compass uh, lost direction has it been in some ways just diminished because of all of the the commercial pressures and the uh, and the and the money in the game at the moment can you can you use that as a as an explanation or an excuse that game every game mm. uh, i don't think it's uh hockey uh, it, it's um sorry just cricket i mean i think it's every game and we've got corporate sport now and indeed um the their customers and it's the, the the money that you can make that overwhelms things the stories following the incident are all about how much money cricket australia will lose and uh that's one of the things that perhaps the players absolutely lost sight of because mm. uh, as custodians of the game, they're responsible for, for some of that. But they're being very well rewarded and they really uh, took their eye off the ball, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to talk to you more about uh, where hockey really became your your profession, your job, uh, your everything. That's uh, coming up. We need to head to a break, uh, Rick. Uh, Rick Charlesworth, my special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888.
You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Dr Rick Charlesworth. Uh, Rick, let's uh, move forward now to, to really what is your hockey days. I mean, you, you were playing hockey, playing cricket, studying medicine, doing all of these things. But at what point did you decide, all right, I've got to give my everything to hockey. Well, you know, I don't. I don't think I ever did that. Um, but uh, certainly, it, it assumed a greater importance in my life. I mean, yep. I remember I was playing cricket at um, Abbott Park in Scarborough on a Saturday afternoon, um, and um, Brian Glencross, who was then the captain of the national team, came to the sideline and. Uh, I was fielding near the boundary and he told me that I'd been selected in the Olympic team. I was wow. Like, I could not believe it. it was, and, and what year was, was that? that no, was I was the... 20, 19, 19 years old. Yeah. You know? So uh, it was 1971 yep. going to the 72 Olympics for Munich. Yep. And uh, so the team was selected very early. That was the way it was those days. You know, you, you toured once a year. And uh, that was uh, that was a big thing, and the Olympics, of course, was uh, was a huge event. In 1971, I'd been to the national championships. I didn't get selected for the team that went in 71. They had a bad tournament. Some things went wrong, and so I suppose they said, we'll take some of these young guys. And I was uh, fortunate to be selected in that environment. And I was the. How did you go fielding for the rest of that day? You're a bit distracted. Oh, I was. Yeah, yeah. And I had to, I had to, I had to go in and bat later on, but it was really hard. To, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was, I was floating. It was because it came out of the blue. It was totally unexpected, and uh, I didn't even know that the team was going to be announced or mm. anything like that. But so, I was very surprised. Absolutely, mm. couldn't believe it, and and so delighted. Uh, a silver medal uh, in the '76 Montreal. Uh, Olympics uh, as a player, uh, you, you got pretty clear memories of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, in '72, the team was, uh, I think, it was over the top. It was we 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 left a couple of people out. Um, we took a lot of older players. Yep. The team was totally refreshed after that. And by '76, four years later, I was uh, I was the vice captain of the team. Mm. And I was uh, pretty raw, pretty fresh. Still, only three or four years in international hockey, I'd played thirty matches or something like that, as you did then. And uh, we uh, we uh, played a you know a, a pretty damn good tournament with a very young team. Um, beat the world champions India twice. We played a repercharge game, the longest game in history, uh, to to get into the semis. We beat Pakistan in the semi, who were the runners up to the world championship. So we beat the best two teams in the world, and then we slipped against New Zealand in the final. I mean, I played bugger. I played 17 years in the national team, more than 30 times against New Zealand. That's the only day they ever beat us. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I could see it still hurts. They had a very experienced team. They yep. played well that day. We 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 uh, were disappointed. There was a there was a in the tournament there was a boycott of the African nations, so there were less teams in the other pool. So by the time we got to the final, we'd played a couple less games in New Zealand. I think we were just. We were worn out. I mean, we beat, yeah. we beat Pakistan in the semi-final, mm. who had beaten them 5-1 mm. in the round. So uh, anyway, we we slipped up that day. And uh, I remember at the time thinking, well, if we'd won and I'm only 23 years old and, you know, what else is there? 
Yeah, so. you might have peaked then. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> as as it was though, you didn't get your chance to well, uh, turn the tables four years later because Moscow, nineteen eighty, the boycott. Well, that's what I'm saying. That yeah. team, which was very young then, was cherry ripe. Yes, four years later and and mature and ready, and we didn't get to play. And that's the sadness of an Olympic. Uh, how did you career. How did you learn of the the boycott? I imagine you would have been very heavily involved in uh, uh, all the talk around the, your team then. But uh, you know, how did you feel about the uh, the the entire Olympic uh, team boycotting the Moscow Games? Yeah, well, we we had our national championships in um, May. The team was selected. I was the captain of the team. W- w- the The controversy had been waging for a while. You know, the the US had said they were going to boycott the Moscow Olympics, and they were asking other countries to do so. Um, and we were fighting very strenuously. Of course, we wanted to go, and and we were told by our sport that we would go if the AOC decided to go. And in a very brave decision, the AOC um, didn't go along the government line. They opposed the the government's uh, um, plan for a boycott, and uh, so it was a very brave decision by the AOC. And John Coates and those that are still involved were involved in that decision. Mm. And um, um, so we were delighted we were going to go. Mm. And then, uh, unfortunately, our sport was very closely connected to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister's principal private secretary was a guy called Sir Geoffrey Yeen then, and Sir Geoffrey Yeen was, uh, he was the secretary of the department, Prime Minister's department. Uh, he was the brother of the president of the Australian Hockey Association, so there was a close connection. They mm. called a special meeting, and uh, um, we were told we weren't going. It was uh, I was crestfallen. Uh, it was... Terribly disappointing. I can imagine. And, you know, I mean, and the president of the Australian Hockey Association got an MBE at the end of the year, and but uh, the the athletes were used as the... I mean, it's a bit like the government's speculating at the moment about whether or not Australia will go to Russia for the... Do you know, I was just going to mention soccer. that. Here we are 38 years on, and we're still questioning whether we should be participating in a, and in the, a big sporting yeah, event in Russia. The sportsmen are the easy option, you know, mm. but the sportsmen uh, are an arm of the state and ought not be. And, and so uh, I would strenuously hope that doesn't occur. Was there much pushback from the athletes uh, at the time? Uh, you know, just pleading... Well, Leading to be able to take part in those games? Some chose by themselves not to go, you know. Mm. There were people who decided not to go for all sorts of reasons, but um, it wasn't a position that we held or or believed in. And, uh, you know, we had spent, you know, four years of our life preparing for this very important opportunity. Mm. And and so it was... uh, uh, it was shattering, really. Yeah. Uh, You played in another two games, two more games after that. Uh, finished up in '88. Yeah, well, I mean, in I, Seoul, but uh, you, by then you'd well more than 200 games, well over 200 games. You can never expect to play that long, you know. I, yeah. If I'd been the coach, I don't know that I would have selected my, <laughs> myself in in '88. But uh, um, and and in in '84 we still had a terrific team. Yep. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, we uh, we slipped up in the semi final against uh, Pakistan, who were very good. But they they did score a goal that was hit from outside the scoring circle. These days you'd have a video referral and mm. be turned over, but in those days nothing you can do. You just get mm. on. So yeah, that was a, that was a disappointment, I suppose. Um, during that time, yeah, I believed we, we won a bunch of major tournaments yes. for the first time. We won the World Cup in '86, so we had many successes. But uh, the Olympic story was a disappointment. Yeah. Uh, 88, uh, you retired. Was it uh, an easy decision 
uh, for you to walk away after the 88 games in, in Seoul? As I said, I was, you know, yeah, yeah, you I, were ready. I, I played in 86 in the team that won the World Cup. That was uh, terrific. In 88, I was, uh, that, that was definitely going to be the, the end for me. I, mm. I uh, didn't think I had uh, the energy or the drive to go any further. And indeed, I had a serious job. I was in the parliament at the time. Yeah, which is uh, something I want to get uh, get into next. Um, 227 games uh, for the Australian uh, men's hockey team, 85 goals, if I'm not mistaken. Um, how do you describe yourself as a as a player? I was a pretty good all-rounder. I don't think I was the yeah. best at anything, but I was pretty good at everything. I tried to make myself that sort of a player, you know. I mean, I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the most skillful. I wasn't the best goal scorer. I wasn't the best defender, but I had all of those things, you yeah. know. And I, I, was, uh, I, was a, I was a pretty smart player, strategic, and I understood the game. That I lasted for 17 years it seems <laughs> when I look back on it. If I'd played now, I'd have played 400 games, yeah. you know. But uh, And there were lots of times that because of other commitments, work or other things that uh, that I didn't go. But it was a marvellous experience. You played in every continent yeah. and, you know, maybe 30 or 40 different countries and, and uh, had some wonderful experiences and saw the world at the same time. So I, I'm... Uh, I'm deeply grateful for that yeah. experience. Was it uh, during those playing days then or towards the back end of your playing career that you started to turn your mind towards coaching? Never even was on the radar Is screen. Is that right? You know, that, that was the completely uh, um, out of left field thing too. You know, that, that came uh, as a great surprise, you know, in, in some ways that, that, I, that I took that direction, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, obviously something we're going to get into because – would you say you were a more accomplished coach than a player? Looking back on your uh, on your life, oh, you know, playing's fantastic. You know, mm. there's nothing as good as being able to do it, but you can't do it forever. You know, yeah. and so, but the coaching was never something that I planned. Yeah, it just happened. Obviously, happened for a reason. Rick. Yeah, I'll tell you the story exactly. We'll get into that right after this uh, break, and as well, your uh, ten years in federal parliament uh, as well. So that's all ahead on this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories. Rick Charlesworth is our special guest. This is eight eighty two six PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since eighteen eighty eight. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Dr. Rick Charlesworth. Uh, We've been talking a lot about uh, your hockey playing days, uh, Rick, but uh, in amongst all of this, you you thought you'd put your hand up for federal parliament as well. (laughs) Why? Well, no. Well, I was um, I, I, after I graduated. I worked at uh, QE two for four years, yep. you know, as a as a resident intern and then a resident. And uh, um, then I worked in general practices. I was playing a lot of sport, and and uh, you know, so I worked as a locum doctor and I worked in the locum service. And but uh, I, I think I got to the stage where I thought, well, general practice isn't really for me. I, I want to do something completely different. So, you know, it was some more study or something else. Mm. And the political option was there, like in the background. I'd been involved in the Kimberley Justice Appeal over Nook and Bar, and, and I felt strongly about the, that issue. Um, the boycott of the Olympics had, had not uh, enamoured the Fraser government to me. Mm. <laughs> 
And, uh, and of course, when I was a student at university, the big issue was the Vietnam War, which I felt was uh, a terrible, terrible mistake for Australia to get involved in. So, uh, and of course, at that time, um, we as students were, were being uh, drafted. Yep. Um, through the lottery system. So, so the, all of those things were part of my, uh, uh, philosophical underpinning of my political view. Yeah. So and the the fires were burning from they, they, well before they, they had been uh, going for a while. When you became yeah. the, the member for Perth yeah. and Bob McMillan, who was uh, became a senator in uh, uh, um, in the parliament, was of course at the cricket club, and I knew. And so you know, I'd been involved, and I was interested in did politics. You, did you put your hand up? For that seat, I, or did someone, no, no, no. Did someone I, come and tap you on the shoulder? The, well, I was I was involved, and there were people who were saying, "Why don't you think about it?" And there was the state election and a federal election at about the same time. The seat of Perth was a seat that the Labor Party had to win to win government. They had a high profile profile member there, um, Ross McLean, who was very popular, and so we. I think the view was we need a high profile candidate. I was working in the area as a locum doctor. I had. Uh, I was well known as a, a sportsman, um, and so uh, I don't think I would have got uh, pre-selection in a safe seat, but in a marginal seat like that one, mm. which which usually swung with government, then I was a chance, and so mm. that probably helped me. And and then you know, I, I mean, I remember going to the pre-selection. I've never been so anxious in all my life, you know. But that was uh, that was a big day, uh, and uh, getting pre-selected, of course, meant then you had to work very hard. Um, in the electorate, we, I think we door knocked nearly thirty or forty thousand houses mm. in Perth in the, in the next year, and, uh, and that was operating. I was actually working in the city in a practice, a general practice, on the day the election was called, and I said to the guys working with, "Well, I won't be back tomorrow." Um, you know, the campaign's on, and indeed, I was part of the Hawke uh, government that got elected, and uh, uh, the Hawke Keating era, as it's now remembered, was. Uh, was a halcyon time in Australian yeah. politics, and and indeed, I'm very proud of the the things that that government did and the uh, the uh, the changes that were wrought. Yeah, I'm still finding extraordinary that looking at the timeline of your life. You know, it, 1983, you're entering federal parliament. You're, you're still working as a as a GP. You've still got five years of Olympic level hockey left in you. <laughs> you must have kept a very tight diary. Yeah, well, I was fortunate. <laughs> Bob Bob Hawke, of course, was very supportive of the fact that I could keep playing, and uh, I was uh, I was uh, enthusiastic about that. And so, you know, I had a boss who would who, who would let me get away sometimes. But during between nineteen eighty four and nineteen eighty eight, for instance, I think our national team went overseas eleven times. I only went twice. Right. So, you know, I, I is that because was that by choice or because you oh, you saw your responsibilities I, elsewhere? I had, I had other commitments, Perth. but yeah. when it was the big tournaments, then I would I mm. could go. But uh, you know, it was yeah. I, I think that, uh, and fortunately, we had big margins, so you you know didn't need a pair <laughs> to to get away. So yeah, uh, but but it was. Uh, it was uh, my my hockey career was limited and winding down at that stage. We recently had uh, Kim Beasley in um, for one of these chats, and he he of course uh, talked a lot about the uh, uh, the Hawk versus Keating, not just uh, them working as a team, but when it all started to go a bit pear shaped. Uh, he of course was uh, was more on the the Bob Hawke side, but I, I believe you kind of uh, backed Paul Keating in his battle against uh, against Bob Hawke more. What do yeah, you remember well, that time? well, both both of them were extraordinary mm. figures, and and Hawke, of course, was a great prime minister. But uh, my view was that we needed 
change and renewal. I think every team needs change and renewal. And I was the chairman of the economics committee of the caucus, so I'd worked quite closely with uh, with Paul Keating. And so, yeah, I was a I was a supporter of Keating, and uh, um, it was a it was a bit of a difficult time. There's a photograph uh, that sometimes shows, or someone showed it the other day in the hawk. There was a, a profile of Hawk on the telly. Yep. Um, there's a photo of Paul Keating sitting on the back bench, and I'm sitting in front of him. You know, we were this little enclave, if you like, but. Uh, Certainly, I was uh, I was a supporter of Keating, and because uh, I believed that we needed renewal and change, and indeed uh, Keating uh, was uh, the backbone of the government during the time that I was there. Yeah, uh, I, I have read that uh, that you one of the reasons you walked away after about a decade or so is because you never had the chance to become a minister. Is that is that fair and accurate to say that? I, I was a candidate for the ministry in 1990, but I. The factional system uh, was uh, was well and truly in play, and our faction, I was a member of the centre-left, was uh, indeed we lost a couple of ministers in after that election in 1990. And so um, it, was, it was frustrating and disappointing because you had to get fra- factional support before you could then uh, make the next step, and I never played the factional game very well. Mm. But I think that... Uh, um, I made a lifestyle choice. Uh, I, I had a safe seat. I mean, Perth's been held by the Labor Party. Stephen Smith took over after me. He was my campaign manager initially, and then I became his. Is that right? And indeed, uh, now then Alana McTinn, and now we have uh, another member for Perth. But the Labor Party has held the seat for all of that time. Yep. And um, so I had a, you know, it was a safe seat. But uh, I made a lifestyle choice. My children were growing up. My marriage uh, hadn't uh, been successful, and so. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't want to continue uh, um, that way, and uh, so I. Uh, I decided I wouldn't stand in the election in 1993. Politics today. Obviously, you uh, you still keep an eye out because I know you've you've made some comments uh, that uh, uh, that that um, I suppose have been of a of a political nature in uh, in years since. Uh, what are your thoughts on the state of politics today? Would you have gotten into politics given the the, the current pressures? Uh, on our pollies and the sort of scrutiny that they face. Well, I think that pol- politicians are much maligned. You know, people say they're out of touch, but nobody mm. understands what's going on in the community better than politicians do. They spend their whole life in their local communities, knowing people, speaking to people. You know, you're attending functions. It's a, it's a, it's a very there's a chapter in my first book, interesting job, terrible lifestyle. Mm. You know, because you don't have a personal life, and, mm. and so it is uh, very demanding, and even much more so under the microscope now than it was then. So that's that's uh, very difficult. Um, my frustration uh, when I was finishing in politics was that we were starting to do this uh, uh, polling of the electorate, and and you know, part of the ethos was that you had to feed back to people what they were saying. You know, mm. my view was that uh, you know, politics ought to be about. Um, leading public opinion and uh, standing for things. And uh, I think we've lost our... Not pandering to populism. We've lost our direction in a whole range of ways, you know. And so I've been a prolific letter writer. Yes. They, they rarely get published, you know. That says something about the people who run the newspapers, I think, because I'm not... You had not published someone... a couple of years ago, did you not, around uh, around refugees yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. asylum seekers? Refugees yeah. and asylum seekers. But the Iraq war, for instance, in, in 2003, I mean, I was a vociferous opponent of that. That's the worst public policy decision of my lifetime. Worse than Vietnam, I suspect, you know, and... Uh, no justification for our entry. Uh, in fact, it was an illegal mm. one. And and uh, look at 
look at the Middle East now and the havoc that's been wrought there as a result of that. Mm. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I think that uh, unfortunately uh, um, we don't, uh, we, we, we haven't, we haven't been very impressive in decision-making in, in some of those areas mm. over a long period of time now. Malcolm Turnbull? Is he uh, is he one of those culprits of pandering to, to to the populist opinion rather than governing and making tough, courageous decisions? Well, I thought he was a real threat to us because uh, he would have been plausible to many people on the left. But uh, mm. since he's got there, he he uh, has shown that yeah, he 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 doesn't stand for much at all, and uh, um, that's that's been disappointing. You know, I don't care who the prime minister is; I want him, I want him to be an effective leader. You know, we don't have tax reform. We've still got the mess in Manus Island. You know, health care is uh, still sickness care. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to cut money away from universities. Mm. There's a lot of things that I would uh, I would like to see changed. He does have a lot of followers on Twitter, though, for what it's <laughs> worth. <laughs> uh, we need to head to a break, uh, Rick. We're going to talk more about uh, some of your coaching accolades uh, right after the break. You listen to WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882-6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882-6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories with my special guest in this edition, Dr. Rick Charlesworth. Uh, Rick, I've perhaps left some of your uh, most well-known achievements uh, to the end here. Let's talk about the Hockey Roos. You were the coach between 93 and 2000, an extraordinary time. They pretty much won it all, didn't they? Yeah, well, as I said to you earlier, I had no intention of getting involved in coaching. My plan after I left the parliament was to go back to medicine, and uh, I got a phone call in the middle of 1992 from the or near, near the end of 92 from one of the girls who'd been at the Barcelona Olympics they disappointed in their performance she said why don't you think about coaching our team it wasn't even on the radar screen and that's all me. it took well i thought about it I thought well maybe i should have a crack and i <laughs> i uh, i made application for the job i was rather a controversial figure because i didn't have any record coaching women um and uh, they bravely decided to go with me and so uh, I, I found myself in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt not a suit and tie mm. with a bunch of athletes who were very ambitious very hard working and, and who wanted to be the best in the world and it was a fantastic environment in which to work I must say one of the most satisfying jobs coaching has been the, the, that I've ever done. Four uh, champions trophies two gold medals it's uh, it's not bad in uh, in seven years uh, as their coach, um, can I ask uh, coaching women? Because I know you did go on to coach uh, coach the men's team some years after that. Is it different coaching uh, coaching a women's team compared to a men's team? Well, my my approach was that uh, you know, and I had two daughters who b- certainly believed that girls could do anything boys could do. There's less power and speed in the women's game, but the the contest is the same. Yep. And um, as I said, the, these girls were were very ambitious, very hard working. The previous coach had developed a work ethic in them and we we were lucky that some of the rules changed. We would we experimented with interchange, we introduced some new ideas. Uh, I understood hockey pretty well mm. uh, and I learned a lot about coaching and I learned mm. on the job and uh, I read a lot of books, I looked at other coaches, I tried went to conferences, I tried to 
um, do different things. And indeed, um, the team, after I'd been there a while, I knew they were good. And mm. I knew we could win things. And uh, we won the two World Cups, two Olympic gold medals and, and uh, all the champions, champions trophies. Champions trophies so, as well. Uh, you know, the, the bit that they were good and I was, if you want to be good as a coach, you better be, better have gifted players, you know. <laughs> um, but I was, the bit I can take some credit for is the sustainable performance, you know, over a, over a decade. Yeah. Um, they were, mm. they were, they were the best team in the world. Extraordinary success with the, uh, with the Kookaburras uh, as well. Um, am I right in thinking that uh, not claiming an Olympic gold is, Something that uh, that that was, um, I don't know, something that still haunts you a little bit. Oh, look, you know, the nadir of my coaching time was, of course, in uh, London, where we slipped up in the semi-final yeah. uh, against Germany. But it's interesting that the Kookaburras, in fact, we we had a better record than the Hockey Roos. Yeah, we I lost. mean, you still won everything else. Yeah, we, we won, every, <laughs> Multiple we won times. everything else and a better win-loss record. And, yeah. But that one day, that one, uh, you know, those few moments, you know, that uh, we slipped up on that day. It was interesting, though, because it led to a reflection on maybe, you know, because we had been so successful leading into the Olympics. I knew when I took the job that whatever happened, Whatever you did, the last two games of the four-year cycle would be the decider mm. as to how people would look at it. And unfortunately, we slipped up in one of those mm. games. But um, and I think that there were things that we had allowed to slip into our culture that weren't as good as they could have been, and we made some mistakes on that day. Um, and a couple of players had a you know things went wrong for it, but we didn't quite have the the, the resilience in the team that I believe I yep. thought we had. Two years later. Um, I think we remedy those things, and we. Uh, my last game as a coach, of course, was a final of the World Cup where we where we won six one. That's never fantastic that's never to go out on, on that yeah. note. Um, you've you've got a reputation as being a pretty tough taskmaster as a coach. Uh, um, I, I think you'd be well aware of your nickname in some circles of the Rictator. <laughs> well, <laughs> how I, does that sit with you? The Rictator came from the boys I coached. Yeah, junior nine, sport. Nine, ten boys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my son was in the team, but they, yeah, they, they called me the Rictator, um, which yeah, that's fair enough. Because, how would you describe your coaching well, style Well, teen, teenage boys these days are pretty cool and relaxed and they <laughs> want to be on social media and they get distracted pretty easily and so you know you, you, you can't be good and yeah. and you can't do two things at once you really have to be focused on what you're doing and so uh, yeah I'm a hard taskmaster <laughs> there and uh, indeed uh, that's where that that name came from you've you've gone on to to either coach or take uh, coaching consultancy roles uh, in cricket uh, with New Zealand um, you've done high performance coaching with the dockers Um how do your skills coaching at elite level translate across sports, do you think? Do you get to that point where, uh, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the game itself don't actually matter, where you're talking about such an elite level that you're talking about, you know, individual traits that are common to all of those sports at elite level? Well, if you want to coach uh, at elite level, you better understand the technical detail of the sport. Mm. I reckon that's about 20% of it, you know. The other 80% is generic. I don't care what you're doing. Yeah. The same issues existed at the Dockers that existed with the Hockey Roos or the Kookaburras or with New Zealand cricket or the Australian cricket team or whoever else, you know. And, and so I think that, you know, there's a whole range of things that are generic that, that sit across sport. Yeah. Um, but the technical detail of the sport, you've got to be on top of, of course, too. And, and so uh, that's important. I mean, 
uh, I spent a couple of years with the Dockers. We had two coaches or three coaches in two years, so it was a pretty mm. um, unstable environment. And uh, indeed, that sort of position doesn't work unless the coach wants you. And I think in the end, you know, that was that that wasn't going to be uh, a position that that was tenable in the longer term because uh, you've you've got to be uh, the coach's mm. um, right hand man in some ways. In my time with New Zealand cricket, then uh, you know that that was a pretty good experience. And while I couldn't impact so much on the Black Caps, the the senior men's team, the the women's team, and the under nineteen team both got to the final of the World Cup while yep. I was there. So we, we did a lot of work with them and, and I think it made a difference and mm. that's what you're hoping to do. You're hoping mm. to make a difference. Well, that you have and then some. Can I ask, uh, all of your, your playing and coaching has been in that, uh, seems to have been in that uh, team environment. How do you reckon you would have gone coaching an individual? I'm, I'm imagining a scenario where you're on the sidelines with, uh, with someone who's got obvious talent but is a bit wayward, someone like a Nick Kyrgios or a Bernard Tomic. How do you reckon you'd go... Coaching, coaching someone like that. Well, in the end, coaches don't change athletes. Athletes change themselves. You know, you create an environment in which that can occur, and and that's what you hope to do. But as a team coach, you coach individuals. Mm. Each individual in the team gets, and, and and if you've got less individuals, you've got more time for them, so that can work. Mm. But people have to remember that individual sports people have to be able to cooperate and work in t- in teams anyway. They have training partners. They have people around them who are part of the team that helps them to be good. So whatever it is, learning to uh, to operate in a team environment, being able to cooperate, those sorts of things are critical yep. for every sport. Just, uh, just lastly, Rick, what are you up to now? What have you still got left to achieve? Oh, I do a bit of coaching at the boys' school. I've written another book, which, uh, you know, I'm keen to – Sell. I uh, do a fair bit of talking, um, and uh, I had a job last year with the AF, last few years with the AFL in their level four coaching program. So there's there's bits and pieces. Mm. Uh, I've got to pay the school fees, as I said, <laughs> and being a parent, you know, that's uh, that's hard enough. Well, I better mention that your uh, your latest uh, work is called World's Best. Uh, I'm sure you can pick it up from all uh, good bookshops and plenty of coaching tips. If anyone reaches uh, your level of coaching, Rick, they'll be doing all right. Thank you very much. It's Rick Charlesworth. Thank you very much for coming in and sharing your inspiring story with us and uh, all the best uh, for your next moves, whatever they may be. It's been a pleasure, Tim. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Stuff for your face and body? It's men's skincare with a purpose. Top quality Aussie-made grooming and skincare to help guys look and feel great with no hassles. Plus, Stuff is helping mental health too. Find Stuff at Woolworths or visit websiteofstuff.com.